So this week's episode is a combo panel of two things that happened at season eight. One is the Q&A for Into the Dark episode called Culture Shock, which is on Hulu at that Blumhouse Television produces. And then we've partnered it with a panel that we did this year called The House That Horror Built Inside Blumhouse Television with the co-presidents and executives of Blumhouse Production Company. And we obviously put them together because Blumhouse makes Into the Dark <laughs> and it made sense. And I think... There may be some shared panelists between the two. I'm not 100% sure. I think Sahar said on both of them. Great. She was also a pitch competition judge. Oh, yes, she I love was. her. A little obsessed with her. But what I think is really interesting about this panel is, so we got the House That Horror Built panel first before we got the screening. And this came directly from season seven in a lot of ways because Jason Blum and Marcy Wiseman, one of the co-presidents, both came to season seven of ATX for Sharp Objects and for an emerging studios panel and we just kind of fell in love with them (laughs) (laughs) it really is funny because Blumhouse is uh, their properties are not necessarily my genre in life number one I'm a chicken they're number one properties because they're expanding now absolutely but when you think Blumhouse yes the first thing that you think I'm assuming get out is get out (laughs) and then us and not us but us I mean the movie us (laughs) us and quotes Alex I don't know but I have seen both of those movies. I did watch them through my fingers, and they're brilliant and beautiful movies, but I think it is, as we've gotten to know them and really gotten to know their properties, realize that they are so much more, but it's such an interesting way that this company was built. Well, and my favorite thing was we met with them after last year's festival because we got a little obsessed with them as like individuals and the sort of their model and what they were doing, that we went and just had a meeting with them in LA to sort of talk about what they were up to. And the line that was said to me that like literally burrowed in my brain that to me was leading to this panel. So Blumhouse is not just about what's under your bed, it's about what keeps you up at night is the line. And so that is Sharp Objects, and that is the new Roger Ailes TV show for Showtime that Russell Crowe's in. It's not just the horror get out. It is about, like, politics and drama and family dynamics and the things that you worry about at night. And I loved that that might not be what they were being thought of a year ago, or maybe not even today, but that that's their brand identity. And that's what the panel sort of started as. And I think a fun little side tidbit was after we went and met with Jason and Marcy last year, then we were allowed to sit in on a production meeting. So this was last August Mm -hmm. as they were really getting started with Into Into the the Dark. Dark. And they were talking about the movie that they were going to make for February. Down. Which, yep, was called Down. And so we're sitting there. It's the first time we had met Sahar, who was just like the coolest person we had ever met before. And I think we both immediately kind of wanted to be her and wanted to be her friend at the same time. But they were talking about the casting for it. And the first name they brought up was Matt Loria's name. Mm-hmm. And both of us sat there going, do we say anything? Do we not say anything? Do we say anything? Do we not say anything? We, did, we didn't we did say not. Anything. We sat there silently. And then they started talking about Natalie, his co-star from Kingdom, and wanting the two of them to play opposite of each other. And then it was within a couple of days, Matt and Natalie were cast in yeah. it. Matt told us, like, we got in a, I got in a Blumhouse movie. I know, because we didn't want to say anything to him, because we we're like, I don't know if this is real. I don't know 
know where they are on the casting, but it was such a crazy moment to be like, they're talking about Matt. What do we do? We nope. Well, we I just think it also mm-hmm. was really cool. Was they let us sit in on that meeting itself? Like they made a movie a month for a year. They're not done. Culture Shock is that we screened was is the July episode. So when this episode comes out, it's the same week that uh, Culture Shock will be coming out. So you'll get to see it. But it what an undertaking to sort of treat film almost like TV, mm-hmm. and they're doing monthly movies, and so all the things that went into casting and production and just all, look at directors and writers and finding the content was such a huge undertaking for such a small team, and we got to kind of like witness all of it in the middle. So the two sides of that and what you're going to hear in these panels is that coming together. And it was really fun because on Thursday night after their panel, we uh, were at the restaurant attached to the hotel and they were all sitting there eating dinner together so we got to experience the joy with them post their screening and Q&A mm-hmm. with the cast and Marcy and met Jeremy Gold for the first time and they just were elated with the way that the screening and the conversation went and it was really fun for us to be able to experience that with them since we were running around during the Q&A and didn't get to actually experience it, it happening. I saw none of them ever again with the exception <laughs> of Jeremy. Jeremy was everywhere in front of me but yes. everybody else disappeared but I think you guys are really going to enjoy it this combo panel Q&A about the company and then the content that they make. Hello, everyone. I'm Jacqueline Coley, an editor at Rotten Tomatoes, and I recently also got to see Culture Shock. So without further ado, you guys didn't come to hear me. Let me call to the stage the folks that brought what you just saw to the screen. First, the director of programming for Blumhouse Television, Sahar Vahidi. Director and co-writer, Gigi Saul Guerrero. And the stars of the film, Marta Higuerera, Richard Cabral, and Sean Ashmore. If I can get you guys to come and join me up here. Yeah, wherever you guys want. And as these guys get settled, um, I'll just go ahead and say it's fitting that this is at Blumhouse because I feel this is just another example of social commentary and just how terrifying our world can be mixed together with also a completely entertaining story with great acting. So I just bravo to all those involved. Um, Sahar, I'm going to start with you. Talk about the whole concept of Into the Dark and just this 12 episode, 12 movie undertaking that you guys decided to do, which is probably not an easy pitch, I'm guessing. (laughs) It's a no brainer. It kind of sells itself. Um, It's really exciting that we get to tell unique stories from all different filmmakers, all unique voices that are really personal and unique. And we get to tie each one to a theme or a holiday of the month that it airs. Um, and this way, we get to tell distinct stories. We get to bring you know, Blumhouse audiences and new audiences different ways into the world. And we get to support amazing talent like Gigi here. Thanks, girl. Mm-hmm. That. Yeah. And then Gigi, you know, with Culture Shock, you joined this sort of brotherhood of the other 12 you know, directors that went through this. I would think probably Crucible, because you're dealing with like television time constraints, but you're trying to shoot a movie. So talk to me how you got involved in the program and, and yeah, just getting this from script to screen. Yeah, no, definitely. You know, I, like I live in Vancouver, Canada. So it was already, already 
quite the shock uh, going into LA, you know, by by myself. But um, what was really cool, as you said, that they had this like TV system. Blumhouse, they're like, they're a machine that it does not stop. But everybody involved, although they were working from every episode back to back, everybody was so involved and so ready. It felt very welcoming, and it was really easy to be the outsider. You know, it was, it was really easy to to just adapt fast because everybody was ready to tackle this project. Oh, yeah, T to tackle this project. Um, but how I got involved was actually through Sahar. I met her in just a general meeting and just getting to know each other until she said, oh, well, we're working on this border crossing horror story. And I was like, say what? <laughs> and then I said to her, I was like, have you seen my border crossing horror short? <laughs> and, and, it, and the rest is history. I mean, I mean, I don't know, that label border crossing horror doesn't happen often. No. So, it was kind of, so, so it was actually really cool to hear that they were working on this story um, uh, in, in a feature length. And from there, they, they saw my short, I read their script, and it was a match made in hell. I, I mean, I, I think it worked. Oh, yeah. I'm so going to steal that, a match made in hell yeah. for all my horror fanals. I love that. Um, and then, Marta, with you, I mean, I feel, is it refreshing for an actor to be dealing with something so topical? Or is it maybe, like, maybe intimidating, too, because you're like, okay, we're talking about something right now. If we don't get it right, everyone's going to know it this is not a historical thing where people can kind of use their own imagination so how did you approach it this now story um, i wanted i was looking for to do a story about um water crossing and um and then so when i read this script uh you know usually we get stories about crossing the border and you kind of know where the story is going to go and in this particular one it was like as i was flipping through the pages I started going, oh my god, I don't know what's happening here. Like, what, what, what's, how is this woman, woman going to get out of here? And how, like, who did this? I want to be part of this. Um, I think the moment in time that we're living right now, it needs to be spoken about and loud and strong and clear. And I really am so thankful to Blumhouse and to Gigi and to everybody for, for daring to tell stories like this. It's important. If you if you have a voice, you better use it, you know? Yeah, and I think that's so well said. Yeah, applause for that. Um, I'm going to ask just a couple more questions, and then I'm definitely going to throw it out to you guys, because, again, we just, y'all sat through 90 minutes of this whole story. I'm sure y'all have questions. The biggest one I have um, for you two gentlemen, it's kind of intimidating, this crisscross storylines when you're reading a script. Like, I, I, I watched it and had to watch it like a couple of times again to make sure, like, to catch things. So, talk about approaching the script and knowing you're part of this, you know, non linear story and how you were going to, you know, keep, keep things together. I mean, were you, did you get it right away? Were you confused like I was? Well, I think there's, there's just, there's two main stories, right? And, and as long as I was solid and understood that um, where I was at, um, then I was good. But I mean, for me, the biggest challenge wasn't the story, it was the speaking Spanish, right? Because um, I'm second I'm second generation um, Mexican-American, so that was the biggest thing. This is my, my first role that I had to speak. I mean, it wasn't a, a lot, but for me, I mean, that's not, that's my second language, so. But I mean, in regards to the story, like, as long as, um, it, it was quite clear, um, and as long as I locked in, I, I was good to go. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I'm guessing that the language was for you too, right, Richard? That was <laughs> so difficult. Um, you know, I guess the big challenge for me and what really uh, interested me in this was that, you know, Thomas actually is really two characters. Everyone got to play those two characters, but that was kind of the challenge for me was, you know, who Thomas was inside the simulation versus who he was in real life and trying to make him uh, somebody that, you know, you at the end of the day, you can understand how he got caught up in this. And, um, you know, I like to say that Thomas made a thousand wrong decisions and, and one right decision. And, um, you know, I think that's kind of powerful. I think that's what it what it takes to sort of um, reverse some of the things that are, that are happening now. It just takes a personal connection that, that Thomas has with Marisol to decide that this is not the way that things should go. And so I thought that was very powerful. And again, speaking to Gigi about what she wanted to do and how she wanted to tell the story, I thought, this is a no-brainer. Go for it. Yeah, I was just going to say, that's not a villain, but it's hard sometimes to add empathy to maybe villainous actions that a character does and i think that was what was so great sean what you brought to thomas it was awesome thanks so appreciate it um gonna throw it out to the audience don't be shy because you have a captive uh, group of professionals here would love to talk about what they just put up anybody yeah right here uh first of all i just want to say growing up in a border town myself growing up in texas which is important to that was a great job because i grew up I saw that firsthand, so I kind of lived through it halfway across the border, got a backup resource. And I thought you caught it perfectly. But my question is, uh, how hard do you guys have to fight to make it in Spanish? The entire thing in Spanish, just for Google uh, now, American. Not hard at all. Uh, we, you know, this concept, the script was half in Spanish when we first found it. Um, and we kind of didn't think twice. It felt so organic and authentic to the storytelling. Uh, we talked to Hulu about it. Um, and they you know, totally understood where we were coming from and why it was important for us to make sure that it felt uh, genuine. And Gigi came to the table and brought a lot of cultural specificity and a lot of intimacy to the story that, um, that made it that much more special. Um, it was never really a fight. I think we were always concerned about making sure it was inclusive of everyone, no matter what language you speak. So we wanted to make sure there was both in there. Um, but the idea of doing a truly bilingual episode was the plan from the get-go. Yeah. And I think to go even further about the language is, it, for me, I was so happy to see a script that already had the bilingual aspect but even furthermore, the opportunity to bring a la Mexicana even more to the language, you know? And at the end of the day, uh, you know, there's this opportunity now with all these stories being told of Latinx people that, you know, it's our responsibility to, to showcase each one of them is so different. And in this case, Mexican Spanish is so different from a lot. And it was really nice actually for the first time in an audience to hear <laughs> Some people caught on into the, the, the jokes of, you know, when the little boy's like, uh, way and things like that. And, you know, I had such a fun time just implementing those Mexican moments. And it, it's just, it was so cool to do that. I'm, I'm glad it resonated with you. Yeah. I will. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a, that's a huge part of this because I guess with all the stories within the series when we're talking about it, this is an American story. I love the fact that the 4th of July episode was a story about immigrants crossing over because we're, you know, people forget we're a nation of immigrants. And 
talk about how you were weaving the American part of the story because you're right, it's funny, it's sometimes terrifying, but it resonates to me with this whole American story and being Canadian, like it was, I felt, I felt, I was like, she got so much of the authenticity right. So how did you do it? Well, well, I come from Mexico City and then I moved uh, in my teenage years to Canada. So I feel very lucky that every time I would come home, I have to speak Spanish at home. The moment we go, go, I go outside that door to school, I speak English. So I always felt part of two different worlds. <laughs> and I, I consider myself Tex-Mex, like the food. Yes, I'm delicious. No, uh, but I, you know, I felt like I was uh, my whole growing, like growing up in Vancouver. I always felt I had two worlds in front of me all the time: at home with family and outside. Uh, with my Canadian friends and atmosphere. And when I saw that opportunity on Culture Shock, I was like, I can really bring something to this. I, I get it. I get it. And uh, um, that's when I, I pitched to Blumhouse. I, I was like, what do you think about a Pleasantville gone wrong? You know? And I just wanted a bit of both worlds and what could happen if both just combine and combine till they're one one world at the end of the day. It's just one place that we were all trying to fit in. And, and that to me has been something I've, I've experienced a lot growing up, uh, living in Canada. But um, yeah. And one of the things that um, Gigi was so wise about when she pitched it to us was that, and you brought up the 4th of July aspect, that independence means something different to everybody. And we talked a lot about the ending moment where some of our cast is choosing whether to go forward to America or go back home to Mexico. And that was something we thought tied in really beautifully to the idea of Independence Day and how to explore that. And Gigi did a great job. Excellent. All right, does anybody else have a question? All right, well, let me ask the three actors. This is one of those films that I feel you get asked to do a lot of different things. Maybe, you know, a little bit of negotiation, like Gigi comes to you, okay, I want you to, what was um, your most memorable ask on set um, from Gigi to do? Oh, I mean, for me, there was, I mean, it's a big challenge already to be, to play uh, a woman, an immigrant that's crossing the border, but she's pregnant. And, and, and usually what I love about uh, horror is that it tells uh, a story about primal, you know, things as human beings that we go through. And one of those is survival, and another one is motherhood. And so for me, all, all the, you know, all that situation, like combining, like, I, I gotta remember I have a child in me all the time, and I have to, you know, fight for this child, not, not only for myself, you become selfless. And, and uh, so, Definitely all the moments in which I had to, you know, give birth. I felt every night I would go home and I'd be like, I gave birth today. And tomorrow I got to do it again. You're the only woman. I was you're the only woman who says that that gleefully. Ever. <laughs> yeah, right. It's a crazy I'm so happy because I have to give birth every day. And 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 another thing that was really interesting for me to be on set and then offset for a moment it's like when we had that eating sequence when we're all eating you know that you know desperately eating um i remember for a moment uh, they wish they were shooting your section so they were not me and i stepped outside of set and stepped in and i started hearing you know Gigi, because Gigi is so animated when she's directing so she was like more more 
Knock it down your throat! Swallow it! If it's spilling, it doesn't matter! So it almost sounded like we were doing like a porn movie, like something like that. Like, <laughs> and I think that's and the day like, that they, they were there. So you made, I was like, oh my god, what are we doing? It was great. <laughs> and, and you know, I what was. What kind of porn are you watching, Martha? Yeah. <laughs> and I you know, you know it got serious. <laughs> You know it got serious when I would yell in Spanish, just so that, the, yes. right? Mas, dale, mas, mas duro! There. Okay, cut. There's so much that Gigi asked, mom. <laughs> Hello there, friend. I mean, yeah, giving birth was, was one of those moments. I, mean, I got to no, do that, yeah, yeah. No, I know, but being there, delivering the baby, not giving birth, right? <laughs> delivering the baby, um, that, was, that, that was pretty wild. Um, and then I, I just think the, I mean, laughing, like, I never smiled so much, right? Like, your jaw will start hurting after a while, just doing those takes over and over, and um, and just hurting people. Like, I had, she really, because I didn't want to do all that stunt, like, most of that stunt stuff, I didn't want to do, but Gigi was like, come on, Rich, you can do it. I was like, all right, Gigi. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, but everything that I did, I, I didn't regret it, you know? It's just sometimes we, we get in a comfort zone, but, um, but it, it was definitely a, a journey like no other. <laughs> she didn't make me do anything crazy. I kind of feel left out. Um, yeah, I didn't have any big asks. I didn't have to run through the desert in the cold like you guys did. I didn't have to eat crazy food. I just got to like hang out in the lab and then hang out in the cafeteria and watch you guys do that stuff. And imagine uh, things. You had to like picture things in your mind's eye a little well, bit, Well, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. But from a performance standpoint, obviously it was, uh, it was actually really kind of fun and, and again, challenging to put yourself into the position of someone that could get themselves into that scenario. Um, but as far as like the big asks, as for like doing gross things or tough things, I got, a, I got pretty lucky. Yeah. Thanks, Gigi. <laughs> I got you. Um, Again, she made me do some really horrendous things. Uh, she did? <laughs> no. Spill, girl. Let's hear the tea. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, real quick, one last thing before we wrap. Unless I'm going to do one last pass if anybody got a question. No? All right. We're going to keep going. It's okay, guys. I came prepared. We could talk for 45 minutes about a 90-minute episode, but we're not going to do that. What do you want people to take away from this episode? Um, and I just want to go down the line because I think when you have 12 movies eventually and they're all going to kind of be attached to a month and a time, I think each one kind of has its own identity. And so you guys can go down the line what you want people to kind of take away from, from watching this particular episode and the, this particular story. I mean, I'll let these guys speak to, to their personal connection to it. I, you know, each one of these episodes is so distinct and takes a theme that you might think you know and turn it on its head. Every holiday, every month, we ask you to uh, reimagine it a little bit. And um, we were really proud of the way that this felt personal and unique and timely. Um, and yeah, go Gigi. <laughs> you said the, the right things already. No, I mean, even furthermore to add what Sahar said, that's what's so cool about each episode. Every, every single one is so unexpected. And you get to really get to know not just the filmmaker, but how cool it is to have an unexpected episode. Uh, so uh, nothing is planned, almost. And I think especially for this one, I mean, my my goal, and, and I'm so happy that it was everybody's goal, was to everybody that watches this, the, the horror wasn't so much on the screen, it was just rooted within the situation of the story. And that we can let go a little bit and 
and have fun. But at the end of the day, when the culture shock is over, we all should talk about it. We all we should feel very open to continue to talk about what is happening today and open the discussion for a better world. And that's what I would hope. Yeah, similarly, I mean, I think some of the, the best things about genre filmmaking and entertainment is that you can take hopefully a socially relevant issue and, and have it go down a little, a little more smoothly because it's sort of set in this fantastical world. But um, I hope what people will take away is that um, there's a very personal and human element to the sort of immigration situation we're dealing with now. And it's easy when, you know, you're standing behind a party or, uh, you know, a team essentially. And uh, hopefully, this is what I took from Thomas's journey is that, you know, he was on board with this program, but the second that he made a real human connection, a personal connection with Marisol, he realized that this is, this is not about, um, you know, teams. This is, these are human beings. And, and to make that personal connection will hopefully guide you to the right decisions. Um, I guess just, just humanizing the, the journey, you know, humanizing a lot of time we, we believe what we see on television, but we don't really know. So, and I think that these characters really bring a, a, a truthful um, quality, a truthful, uh, truthful lives of, of what these people are going through on the border. So it, humanizing. Last but not least. <laughs> I think, um, you know, it's a message well, everybody said it already, but um, everybody should get a fair chance for a good life. Everybody. And I feel when you, you know, when you're split in groups, you are, you know, you can desensitize to it. You can say, oh, no, I don't agree with this, or I agree with that. And you kind of like see it from an outsider's perspective. When, but when you're, when you ask yourself the question, if this was to be happening to me, or my daughter, or my, you know, or at, at people that you love, then it's when you start saying, oh, I can see the issue. I can probably, you know, you start opening up to that humanity. It's easy to, um, to kind of like, to hide safely under the disguise of a political situation or and privilege, privilege, yeah, yeah. and privilege, yeah. But when you really open yourself into wondering and asking yourself those questions of like, what if this was happening to me? Then you can open up and see, you know, and find that humanity. And then this is done, obviously, through entertainment. But there's a lot of truth behind it. And so, if we can touch somebody, even if it's that one person. Great, you know, we did it. And um, yeah, that's how I feel. All right, well, thank you guys. I appreciate this so much. Thank you all for staying to listen and uh, tell everyone to catch uh, Into the Dark on Hulu. Thank you guys. Thank you very, thank very much. You. So, Emily, as this podcast grows, we've been trying to figure out how to partner with more people that help grow the podcast a little bit more, but also speak to our podcast listeners. Yes. Uh, I think our podcast listeners are a lot like our festival attendees, half industry, half fan, but then also industry sort of, I don't want to say hopefuls, that sounds silly, but like, oh, prosumers. I heard that word. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Prosumers, meaning that you're professional sort of transitioning from consumer into professional. Uh, So we... I didn't know about this company until we started doing these podcasts and they reached out to us and it seemed like the perfect fit to put them on the podcast, which is 
Audio Network. In case you didn't know either, because I didn't, it is a global music company creating original, high-quality music for television, digital media, and advertising, with more than 150,000 wholly-owned tracks from renowned composers, respected producers, independent artists. The catalog covers a broad range of genres that offers simple licensing across platforms, anywhere and forever, which I think is super cool because music licensing and music supervising and all of those things is incredibly difficult and complicated. Uh, It's very hard, and I actually wanted to be a music supervisor at one point in my life career, and then realized, one, how much paperwork it is. I thought it was just going to be sitting around listening to good music. Yes, (laughs) getting to listen to cool music and imagine what it would look like in a TV show or a movie. And I feel like what Audio Network does is it lets you do that part. I mean, they have 150,000 tracks. That's huge. Yeah. So you get to probably not listen to all of them, but you get to listen to them, picture what you want in your project, and then they do everything else. Yeah, well, and even beyond that, they have music researchers. So 150,000 songs could be really kind of overwhelming. <laughs> yes. You know, you need to like shrink that. So they have experts that speed up the search with live music briefs and help people find the perfect track to tell the story, whether that's in an ad or digital or, you know, tonight's episode of Grey's Anatomy. I don't know if Grey's Anatomy is on tonight. No, but it's still very cool. And especially, uh, you know, we're living in a world where people are creating a lot of content and people are also getting their videos taken down from YouTube and such because they don't have licensed content. Yeah. So this is a way to not have that be you. Correct. So whether you're, you know, one of our pitch competition winners and you're just starting out and deciding to make like a little something on your own or a major television studio, I mean, they work with, Netflix, Viacom, Disney, Discovery, National Geographic, just to name a few. What I also think is cool, because I think music licensing can also be fairly expensive, from what I understand, uh, they are giving an exclusive 2019 ATX Festival promo for 20% off your first music license with Audio Network. All you have to do is email the team, atxpromo at audionetwork.com to redeem. In addition... I, I'm going to go listen to this. They've created a exclusive playlist for ATX. That's awesome. And we're going to put both that promo code and the playlist in the show notes. So you can go listen. Yeah. And then you don't have to write it down right now because you might be driving or jogging or <laughs> grocery shopping. You should not write it down if you're doing any of those things. No. But when you get home and you get back to your computer, check out the show notes, check out the playlist, and check out Audio Network. Hi guys, thanks for being here. I'm Bryn, I'm with The Hollywood Reporter and I am here to introduce our esteemed panelists. Um, We're gonna start with Jeremy Gold, who is co-president at Blumhouse, come on out. Followed by Sahar Vahedi, who's director of development. And then we have Amanda Spain, Director of Alternative and Non-Scripted. And last but certainly not least, Marcy Wiseman, also co-president at Blumhouse. (laughs) Thank you all for being here. Are we showing a clip right now or or is that later? Does anybody know? No? Now? Can we show that clip? 
We're, okay, we'll come back to it. We're, we'll do some introductions first. <laughs> some technical difficulties. So thank you all for being here. Um, today, of course, we're going we're gonna to do a deep dive into Blumhouse TV and, and look at how Jason Blum's company has gone from being this, you know, in, or this, this successful film production company and, and made their way into TV and, and sort of transformed the brand and, and broadened it out. Um, so I'd love to start with each of you. Tell us a little bit about how you landed in this job, and what sort of your role is at, at Blumhouse. Starting with me? Great. With you, Jim. Um, good afternoon, everyone, and thank, huge thanks to ATX for, uh, for having us. And uh, I've gotten to know Caitlin and Emily a little bit. I mean, can we give it up for these ladies and what they've built? It's truly incredible. Marcy's been before, um, and we've been here before at Blumhouse, but it's my, some of our first time, and it's really, really impressive. So uh, I was fortunate enough to come to Blumhouse um, just under three years ago. Marcy, Sahar, and I actually all joined at the same time, um, and um, it was uh, very fortuitous. I was, at the time, um, running a division at a company called Endemol Shine, um, and uh, running the sort of scripted efforts there, and left there to come uh, partner up with Marcy and launch the studio. And um, very briefly, my history has always been in, in, in theater, film, and TV, going way back to running a theater company in New York. Um, you're welcome. I'm sure you all <laughs> saw those plays in Tribeca back in the 90s. Um, and, uh, but, but segued from, from theater into to TV um, pretty early on and um, was an executive at um, places like Carsey Werner and 20th Century Fox and Fox Broadcasting, where I ran the comedy division for a while and then into and then, and then Blumhouse to launch the, uh, the studio. So that's the long story, very short. Hi, I, uh, I actually came originally from indie filmmaking um, and loved that and then fell into television and loved that. And then uh, I found out that Blumhouse and Jason were really excited about changing the game in both of those fields. And we've found ways now to do something different both in film and in TV and combining those in an interesting way. Um, and like Jeremy said, we'd worked together for a long time and the presidents of the studio came in with the idea of saying, F the system, let's try something new and bigger and better, and that was really, really exciting for me. I think you can actually, uh... thank you. I think you can actually use the F word. I'm not sure, but I think you can. Um, so, hi, um, my name is Amanda. I'm the director of alternative and nonfiction programming. I was originally an independent documentary producer. Um, I actually got to know these wonderful people because they executive produced uh, one of my latest documentary features that I produced called Bathtubs Over Broadway that you can see on Netflix now if you would like to. Um, but I come from, like I said, indie docs. I did a lot of, like, I've worked in a lot of social justice areas, like environmental, uh, impact of war, civil rights, civil liberty. Um, but I've also worked in a lot of, you know, traditional reality TV. Like, I did a show, Ghost Inside My Child, and, uh, <laughs> and a true crime show called uh, She Made Me Do It. So I've really <laughs> walked both worlds. And so when they graciously offered to let me come to the company, I was like, please, please let me do this, because they're doing really what I love doing, which is doing both serious documentaries and seriously fun documentaries. So, anyway. Can we develop the sitcom of Ghost Inside My Child? Please? Oh my God, totally. <laughs> don't, I mean, ABC Friday Night, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't think it's hard to understand why we hired Amanda. I mean, every title there um, was horrifying. Um, 
So Jeremy, as Jeremy said, we came to Blumhouse um, together in um, the middle of 2016 and launched the studio officially in 2017. My background um, is uh, more on the business side, um, and um, I this is the fourth-ish television studio, I've kind of independent television studio I've built. And when Jason said to Jeremy and I, look, I control my destiny in film and I feel like I'm a schmuck in TV because all I get to do is people call and say, well, you put your name on something. And that doesn't feel like very Blumhouse. What can we do to really control our destiny and tell the stories we want to tell, it was an irresistible opportunity. And Jeremy and I have known each other for many, many, many years. We've worked um, on many projects together, studio, network, vice versa. And so um, we jumped in and decided to um, take what the film company had done and spin it in a way that was appropriate for the television marketplace. And uh, we've had a lot of fun doing it. Might be now a good time to see that video if it's working. Nope, nope, we got Let's the. See. the no, getting the. Nope, not working okay, yet. So well, then we won't be. <laughs> well, this that video. leads into my next question, which is. When you guys started the TV arm of the company, you were you were very intentional about broadening out what Blumhouse could be. And on the film side, obviously, you know the company's known for making these these low budget horror movies very successfully. Um, but you guys thought that you could sort of open up what whore, you know, really means. And, and I, th I think the term is um, things that keep you up at night. That's something that you guys look for. So can you, can you explain what, what does that mean to you and why does that, what draws you to that idea? Um, well, we all probably have a little bit to say on that, but um, I got involved and met um, Blum through uh, a collaboration at another company I was working on, sitting literally in the same seat last year talking about it, which was Sharp Objects, which we premiered here at ATX last year. And thank you. <laughs> and in some ways, Sharp Objects epitomizes what we think Blumhouse Television is needed to be, now is, and should continue to be, which is not just to tell stories about the monsters under the bed and things that are in the traditional genre entertainment space, but also to explore things in the world that scare us and that keep us up at night and that are conversation starters. And so, um, you know, examples of those kinds of programming, we have a series premiering on Showtime on June 30th uh, called The Loudest Voice, and it's the story of Roger Ailes and Fox News. What's scary about that? <laughs> it's, a, it's a comedy musical. As, as Jeremy likes to say, it's not horror, but it's horrifying. <laughs> but also, the, the, the themes in genre, genre now stretches to so many different kinds of storytelling, and we find that in incredibly exciting to tell unique and uh, you know stories that are bespoke that really come from an authentic place and and our conversation starters yeah I would just also add that you know if you when Marcy and I got to the company um, in Sahar in the you know those uh, early days just under three years ago we really looked hard at what was happening with the brand on the feature side and on the TV that was being produced. And it really was embracing that and continuing to broaden it because things like Whiplash um, and, and Get Out, which was about to be released when we got there, and The Jinx and Normal Heart in TV, all of those were sort of opening the aperture of how you define 
horror. And we really took that and embraced it and, and ran with it. And we also expand it into our non-scripted programming. And Amanda, you should talk about a lot of the things we have and that we're doing. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I, why I'm so passionate about documentary and nonfiction tele like television and films is because I actually find the real world to be more horrifying and also more beautiful than anything anyone can script. And, you know, uh, we are telling the stories of real people who are also those monsters that um, people have deemed monsters. I don't think I can talk about that one just yet, but there's one that you'll know at some point. We're telling the story of, you know, uh, social injustices that have happened in the world that um, are absolutely horrifying and happen in our own backyard. But we do it in a way that we hope mass audiences will come out for. Because if we don't get the mass audience, it's just a tree falling in a forest. And I know that what I love about this company is that they make really hard subjects watchable. They make really hard, intellectual, social issue-driven subjects something that mass audiences will enjoy and then walk away going, oh, shit, I didn't think about it like that. Like, that horror film is actually about something way more interesting and subversive than what I thought it was. And we're, we're doing that in the nonfiction department as well. And, you know, yesterday we had the um, honor of showing um, one of our, the installments of our Into the Dark series on Hulu, which is a series of movies. We uh, premiere a movie a month on Hulu, um, and they are holiday-themed, and they are traditional genre. They explore all different flavors of genre, and Sahar, you should talk a little bit about, but we premiered Culture Shock, which is our July installment celebrating Independence Day. Is G think, hold on, is Gigi here? Yeah, it's Gigi oh, here. Oh, Gigi! The filmmaker, our filmmaker the, the right talented there. Director. Richard, Richard Sachs, too, I That's, think. Our yeah, yeah, director's yeah. here. And Richard, Richard Cabral, one Richard's, of the stars, Oh, Richard's here, here, too, well. starring in the movie. <laughs> Anybody else? Good. I guess. Well, yeah, Sahar, you, when, you, you sit in sort of this interesting space where you straddle film and TV as you're creating these these streaming films for, for Hulu and then soon for Amazon. What is it like to be in that sort of middle ground space? It's really exciting. I think the way that people watch television today has changed so much than it has in the, even in the last couple years. For us, being able to marry what we do best in the feature world, you know, giving voice to new talent, telling stories from unique points of view that maybe don't get a lot of representation, um, and marrying that with our expertise in, in making sustainable TV shows and being able to support our filmmakers um, with, you know, crews that can really hold them up and making sure that we're guaranteeing this work gets seen and gets out there. Um, it's really fun for us to do. It's kind of a whole new way of making movies and TV. Um, and we figured out a way to crack the code to give voice to a lot of new talent. And how will the, the, the Into the Dark and this series that you're going to be making for Amazon, how are those going to look different? It's a great question. From each other, you mean? How are they going to yeah. look different from each other? Well, they both um, emphasize kind of different things that we'd like to bring to light. Um, Into the Dark takes specifically a theme of the month or the holiday of the month and flips it on its head. So we get to have interpretations from filmmakers like Gigi who come from, you know, a very specific experience. It's sort of an immigration story with a sci-fi twist. And like Amanda said, we get to take things that are relevant and important and we all want to talk about today and give them an entertaining way for us 
us to kind of bridge that barrier to be able to talk about it. Um, and on the Amazon series, we are looking at very specific kinds of storytelling and points of view into themes like betrayal and how those manifest for different people from different backgrounds in, a, in, in an interesting way. So that's not holiday specific, it's more theme specific. And I think the Amazon films will be lean more heavily into the thriller um, genre where we really embrace all different flavors of horror and sci-fi at with our the Hulu dark, series. Yeah. And I think I we're getting waves from behind. So maybe we could just show you a little bit about what we've been doing. Ooh. saw a thing and nobody did anything you can run on for a long time run on for a long time run on for a long time sooner or later gotta cut you down sooner or later gotta cut you down That long tongue liar, go and tell that midnight rider, tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter, tell him that God's gonna cut you down, tell him that God's gonna cut you down. I never loved you. I hope that's some comfort to you. People, they wear masks their whole lives. Sure as God made black and white, what's done in the dark will be brought to the light.
Well, I think you can see from the video there, you can see all the similar themes that, that sort of make up the Blumhouse brand. I'm curious how important you think it is to have a strong brand like that as an independent studio today. I think it's uh, incredibly important, but I'm going to oh, pause wait, a I second. Oh, wait, I think we have a for a second. Special, Somebody wants to say guest. hi to the ATXers. I have Jason Blum on FaceTime. Hey, I'm at the gym. I'm at the gym working hard. They all just got to see a little sizzle about our uh, little company we got going on. Here's Jeremy. I love it. Take good, take good care of, take, take good care of Team Blumhouse, everyone. Thank you, Jason. Have a good workout. Have a good workout. Uh, so, brand. Brand. Um, brand. I mean, listen. I think we are the, you know, lucky beneficiaries of a brand expansion that is truly unparalleled and unrivaled. And so, you know. Um, Today, as an independent television studio, I think it is crucially important, and I think I'm saying as someone who had run a studio that didn't have that strong a brand prior to coming to Blumhouse, it's incredibly challenging. It's challenging doing it where we're doing it. It's challenging everywhere, but um, we lean on the brand heavily, and I think it's notable, though, the brand is more meaningful to some outlets than others. I think there are some platforms, particularly some emerging streamers, for whom the Blumhouse brand is maybe a tad less meaningful, and there are others who will want to slap our brand on things, and we have to actually control that a little bit and be very disciplined about when we, we attach to things and when we don't. Um, but we, um, it, it also has been important to us to really, as I said, kind of expand on it and help our audience, be in a conversation with our audience um, and also with the networks we partner with to understand what a Blumhouse series or film or slate of films looks like and feels like. You know, I think we talked a little bit about this last year when um, I was on a panel with um, various people that run other independent studios. And I think I would just double down on what Jeremy said and what I think I said the exact same thing last year. It's a huge opportunity in a marketplace where there's, as we all know, unbelievably amazing television, but a lot of it, like a tonnage. And the chance to have both a filter by which we look at material, um, the use of the brand to help market and get the material noticed. And I think something that we've started to understand is a pedigree in how we produce and curate material. So buyers, um, and this is not necessarily consumer-facing aspect of our business, but I think it's important in selling shows and being able to sell the kind of variety of programming that we're selling, is that we bring a discipline um, and a reliability and a real expertise and production methodology to what we do. Some of it's low cost in television and much of it, as you saw the transformation of Russell Crowe um, <laughs> is not um, low cost. Um, but um, we, it's becoming very important and we have a lot of outlets that are reaching out to us as the world of infinite and three-dimensional world of streaming grows where um, what we do and how we do it is um, of great value. Well, and you guys work with a number of, of streamers and, and cable networks. I think 
by my count, it was 10, 11, 12 different buyers, and that, that's pretty significant. So how, first of all, what is the advantage of working with that many different companies, and how do you build all those relationships and keep them going? Because you also have repeat business at a lot of these. We bribe them all. <laughs> well, first and foremost, I think for Jeremy and I, we have an amazing team of executives who cultivate those relationships, and Sahar and Amanda are um, just small and excellent representatives of um, our, our team. We have a we don't have a giant team, but. Um, we, we really work on relationship building. The advantage for us in working with many buyers is, um, I mean, if you're an independent studio and you're a content maker, it's kind of, it's, uh, it's not just, you know, one of the goals. It's one of the main goals that you can provide to many. It requires a level of flexibility in deal-making. It requires... Um, I think a level of flexibility in how you partner. And as I think Jeremy was referring to before, we have to be flexible about how and when the brand is being used. And that's a piece of the puzzle that we're kind of slowly evolving. Yeah, and I would add, I think for us, there's nothing more um, meaningful in those relationships than repeat business with 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 the platforms and you know for example we are about to start production in five weeks on um the good lord bird which you saw a little little piece of there that's um starring ethan hawk directed by the great albert hughes for the menace to society fans in the house and dead presidents etc and that is our second kind of super premium limited series for showtime and that means that means a lot to us both like professionally and also personally that they had a good enough experience with us on a, the, you know, our, our rather ambitious Roger Ailes, Russell Crowe, and five hours of prosthetic makeup show that we wanted to go do it all again. That's, I mean, we can't underemphasize how important that is to us, and we have repeat business at a lot of platforms, and that's, and we, you know, take care of those, those relationships. Yeah. And that's kind of because Jeremy and Marcy in building this company garnered so much trust from the buyers to know that the material they're going to get from us is really curated, is really thoughtful, comes from super fresh voices, and that we have the ability to execute at a really high level um, on stuff that maybe nobody's seen before. Well, and you mentioned, Marcy, I think that you have to be discerning about when you do use the brand and when you when you don't as much. Can you give any specific examples of, of when you have had to pull back a little bit or or have used the, the brand more strongly? You know, I think the, the, the first thing that Jeremy and I did when we came to the company was we were very clear that if we were going to be a studio, that the Blumhouse brand and Blumhouse branding had to really be connected to shows that we were hands-on producing. Um, and that we had to be involved in the process, not simply as producers, added value kind of brand producers, but really that we were in it. And that, I, you know, it took a tiny bit of, um, of kind of recalibration. Um, and even st we started that on Sharp Objects. Uh, Blumhouse was um, really a producing partner, but um, in working with Entertainment One, where I actually happened to be <laughs> at the time Sharp Objects was greenlit and then moved over to Blumhouse, and so that's kind of how I got to know Blumhouse, we actually really evolved that partnership so that we felt that we could lean into things that were uniquely Blumhouse. And I think the show... Um, for those of you who have seen it, has 
these all these elements that we're talking about. And then I think it's also really, a lot of it is organic. We listen to the marketing departments of the networks that we work with, and sometimes there's a lean-in, and sometimes there's not a lean-in. They do a lot of work on which audiences they're talking to, and sometimes it's front and center in the marketing, and sometimes it's front and center in the publicity or the promotion that we do. Um, so um, we like to be fluid with it, but but hopefully strategic. That makes a lot of sense. And and you guys first launched, I think I have the date right, in 2017 you launched the, the TV studio. So what what was sort of the rationale behind that that decision and why was that important to you guys? Meaning that being a studio or the timing? Well, I think to, to Marcy's point, it sort of goes back to, to the catalyst for bringing us aboard, which was that... Um, Blumhouse had developed, had produced in TV, but in a producer for higher capacity. And Jason and Charles Layton, his partner in the company, was very anxious to, or, or excited to get the television business more in alignment with the film company in terms of the ability to manifest our own destiny. And so it was really about being able to um, have a financial capacity to invest in series and retain some of those rights and be beneficiaries of, of some success in those and just be able to really um, develop from the inside and make things happen in television without waiting for someone else to call or someone else to, you know, proverbially turn the lights on. And like on a philosophical level, the DNA of Blumhouse has always been, you know, put your faith in your creators, in your talent. And on the feature side, Jason was really able to support a lot of talent, give them freedom to, to bring their vision to life. And when you're, sometimes when you're just a producer in television, you don't necessarily get to protect your talent in that way because you have, you know, a boss and a boss studio network. And so part of that also was stepping more into a position where we could defend our creative choices and defend the talent that we were so proud of and we were investing in. Well, in the first two series that, that you guys announced at that time that were going to be part of the studio were the Roger Ailes miniseries and the, and the Purge, right? Do I have that right? Why were those the first two projects that made sense? Well, I, I, I'll start by saying, I think, first of all, they're, they're a good example because, or they're two good examples because they're so different in their DNA and genesis. And um, number one, the Purge. So The Purge is a hugely successful film franchise. Again, we are the lucky beneficiaries of James DeMonaco's prescient brilliance um, about you know this idea centering on 12 hours of lawlessness. And there were three successful, very successful, profitable Purge films before we started developing the Purge series, and then the fourth was released after we were already up and running on, on the Purge uh, series. So the Purge was an adaptation of franchise, or as we like to say, it was sort of the fifth installment of the franchise, and the one we're about to do, season two, which started shooting a couple of days ago, this week in New Orleans, Go Purge, is the really the sixth, the, the sixth installment of the Purge, and then there will be a Purge feature coming, um, per, which uh, comes next summer. So um, it is a major, majorly important franchise within Blumhouse um, and so it was a, a hugely important task for us to to tackle that and I will also say and I don't mind sharing here that you know for Marcy and myself have been in the company for five minutes and had this opportunity to go do this there was a strong sense of um, and I'm going to use Sahar's word we better not fuck this up because this is a really important franchise and um, and it was funny Jason teased us so much about like were you really worried about like screwing that up like yeah we were really worried about screwing that up because it's really important um, so we were happy that that season became the number one drama on USA and that we got a second season um, and I will let you talk about the genesis of, of Ailes. 
So the um, the genesis of Bales is actually, you know, sometimes opportunity knocks. And um, Jeremy and I had been at the company, this is in the summer of 2016, as we were putting together the mechanics for actually being a true independent studio. And we, um, we got a, a call from our head of communications at the time, said, my friend, Gabriel Sherman, the journalist for New York Magazine, is getting a lot of attention on this book he wrote four year, three years ago, The Loudest Voice in the Room, because this coincided with the Republican National Convention, where Roger Ailes, the drama behind the scenes at the Republican National Convention, was Roger Ailes was being kind of circling the drain at Fox News as the allegations of sexual harassment were coming to light. And Gabe was relentlessly covering the story, including at the RNC, and really the first person to kind of, the women were going to him, the Paul Weiss investigation, he had the scoops on that, and so some outlets had called him and said, we want your story. And um, <laughs> he had optioned the book previously to um, some other pay outlets who very quickly unoptioned it um, uh, because of maybe some uh, overtures, not nice ones, from Fox News. And so he was wary of being burned a second time, especially at this particularly relevant moment. Um, and so Jeremy and I had been there like three weeks, and we said, yes, tell him to talk to no one else. We're buying it. And then we looked at each other and said, what is it? We didn't know if it was... <laughs> we literally didn't know. We hadn't read the book. We were reading the articles. We were like, what? what is it a movie? Is it a documentary? Is it a documentary series? Is it a television series? And we were very honest with Gabe. We said, we don't know what it is, but we're going to make it. We promise you we're going to make it. It's an important story. Go finish covering it because we bought it before Roger Ailes actually was fired. And um, Gabe's one request was that he would have an opportunity to participate actively in the creative process of whatever we were doing, um, which we committed to again, which is a little crazy since we didn't know what it was. But um, then we had the great fortune of Tom McCarthy who had just come off of winning um, an Oscar, two Oscars for Spotlight, saying he would help us shape it into a premium television series. And so, three years later, we, here's, here we are. <laughs> By the way, there's something so cool about the fact that we at Blumhouse can and have taken material and developed it in a any number of ways, whether it's documentary or TV or a feature, we have the ability to do that and be flexible and just the right medium for the storytelling that we want to do, but also the fact that we're not afraid of anything. A lot of people were really scared of that project, of putting their talent on that project, um, and we were like, nah, it's fine, it's going to be fine. We'll do it. We were told by um, we were told by a very uh, major agency and a leader of that agency, in fact, um, that he would not put any of his talent on it because they would never work at Fox again. Um, and he, uh, you know, thought it was a terrible idea. But here we are. Yeah. And then all his. He since uh, told us he it. was wrong. Yeah. Yes. 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 <laughs> those are th we like those moments. <laughs> but yes, exactly. <laughs> but they're, they're it's rare, a really right? great segue to um, talking about 
our approach to material. We work very closely with the features company, and we're a content, we are a pure content play company. We make content. And if you can remove the constraints of how you think about what content should be, it's one of the most exciting things that's going on in the marketplace. You know, something could be a limited series, it could also be a documentary series. Can it be both? Can it be a film? And Amanda and the team, the, the nonfiction team, um, are really working on that. In fact, with a New York Magazine piece that we just, another New York Magazine piece that we just bought. Oh yeah, um, I don't know if any of y'all had a chance to, y'all, I'm actually from Texas, so I, I'm using the y'all. Um, there's a, an article about Sarah Lawrence, this, these, yes, I see some heads nodding. So anyway, it, check it out, uh, about these young girls and guys who sort of got conned in, by this man in a very dangerous and scary way. And we're working on the scripted side of it, but we're also looking at how we're going to tell it in the non-scripted way. I have my own personal point of view. I want to like follow as we try to save one of the girls. Um, but we are, we are doing this on a lot of levels, taking these stories that they have to script, and we're looking at how can we tell the real story and you know make it be this beautiful partnership that releases it into the world at the same, in the same, not necessarily the same time, but keeps that story alive, if that makes sense. And a lot of times the stuff that Amanda finds and our unscripted team finds that are real life stories, we on the scripted side get really inspired to, to do something with that too. So it's always fun because we're in each other's offices all the time saying, what about this and what about that? And, and how can we adapt it and how can we do two things at the same time? One of the things I'm trying to do right now is because in my title is this word alternative. And I'm like, I want to figure out what alternative programming means. And I, I literally don't know yet. So I, I am actively searching to find the different ways to tell these non-scripted stories in a really exciting and unique way. And some of the ways people are doing it are hybrids, you know, where we're telling real stories but putting fiction elements in it. I think it's really exciting to do. You know, podcasts have taken off. Obviously, we're all listening to podcasts. I've, I'm trying to get a few of them going at, at the company. And But what's the twist on podcasts? Like, now we've all gotten used to podcasts. How can we do it a little bit differently? How can we up that bar? I feel like what's great is that I'm constantly being, these people are so amazing. They're super, like, incredibly creative. The thing about the people at Blumhouse is that they're always generating creative ideas, and what it does is, like, it holds this bar up here. And so I'm constantly trying to hit it and be like, okay, how can I think differently? How can I not just do a doc this way? How can I not just tell a story this way? And for me, that's what keeps you going to work every day because you're constantly excited and inspired. That is so gratifying to hear you say that. Um, but I would say that, you know, having developed material for a really long time, one of the best things about what we're talking about is that when material comes in, you know, oftentimes you're somewhere and you think, oh, I love this, but it's just not what we do, or we don't have a way to do that. And if we really love a story, we're going to find a way to do it. And sometimes we'll find a way to do it two ways. So, you know, there's a, a project um, that is both a feature and is also now a doc series. Um, not announced yet, so I won't go into it, but that's really exciting. One article became both a feature film and a documentary series. And that kind of thing is, is really gratifying to be able to say yes if we believe in the story, and then to back to Ailes, we'll find the right way to tell the story. We know we love the story it has to be told, we'll find the best way to execute it. Are there other Blumhouse films that you guys are talking about adapting? 
Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> and um, there's that shared brain thing. <laughs> um, one franchise that we're really excited about, we can't announce yet, but um, we it's a, a a film that we feel was an origin story for a whole world that we're really excited about opening up. So, um, and we'll look. We'll continue to look at. Um, the film franchises um, that we can um, expand. And I think film is also, you know, looking at some of the stuff that we're doing in TV and seeing if there's an afterlife for some of that material as well. And this, this streaming movie business is a real opportunity for us. We make the films that go straight to streamers, so I guess it's a MOWs reinvented. Um, I, and, um, you know, we're in, th in th a period of three years, we're gonna make 32 streaming movies, um, which is a lot. I think that's more than our feature company makes. It might be more than a year. But the cool thing about that is that we actually have a path to get these aired and seen. And a lot of times in the indie film world, like back in the dark days before Blumhouse, I got to work on movies like Django Unchained and Contagion, which were big budget and had great talent, but even that, they didn't know when they were going to be released, and you never knew if you actually were able to get them made. We come in to production on projects that we know are going to be seen by a large audience. We know exactly when and exactly how, and that gives our filmmakers a lot of confidence to do their thing. And then we've talked a lot about adaptations and, and you know existing IP. Where do you guys find original material? Where do you look for that? Everywhere. Everywhere. I mean, we are constantly reading. I mean, I, you know, I'm scouring Texas Monthly. I'm scouring Texas Monthly, The Atlantic, The New York Times, The New York. I mean, I am constantly reading. And I have two young kids. I mean, it's not like that's like how I find that. Like, I'm like, what? What do you, you need to go to the bathroom? No, I'm in this true crime article. She reads um, aloud articles from The Atlantic to her children. Yeah. Bedtime stories. <laughs> they yeah. love it. At two years old, they love it. But it's like, that's like we're constantly sharing on back and forth articles or stories or podcasts or a friend will come up and tell like here wait I gotta tell a Sahar story the best like one of the coolest things about this company is so we have interns and interns get to make little movies at the end of the year and they show them in our screening room right and I wanted to go check them out I was like I want to go see what the interns were up to so I went inside and I watched them and they were, they were really great actually and I came out and I said to Sahar there were some really great movies in there and she goes anything I can use and I thought They'll take ideas from whoever, like, it, it's an intern to Albert Hugh. Like, it doesn't, they're constantly looking for good ideas, and they, they're not snobby about it, you know? And so that was, like, when I knew that, you know, their minds were open. And then uh, just a couple more questions, and we're going to open it up to the audience, so be thinking of what you want to ask. Um, but when it comes to budgets, because on the film side, the company is known for you know its low-cost movies and, and making them very successfully. I'm sure that that doesn't exactly translate to TV <laughs> when you're making many more hours of content. So what's sort of your, your approach and, and perspective on um, you know, the financial piece of this? Well, I think from a budget standpoint, we're kind of budget agnostic. We are aware of what the opportunity is, the creative opportunity. We talk to our partners. Um, our Hulu series, um, which is these 12 films that we have uh, are making. 24. Um, uh, tw yeah, the 12 for this year. Um, and um, we... Um, that is probably most closely hues to what we did on the film side. And what we did was we built a television infrastructure 
to allow independent filmmakers to come in and make their movies very efficiently. Um, and in fact, we kind of cracked the code, I think, well enough that our film company doesn't make movies in that low of a budget range anymore. We do them for through the TV company. Um, they, we find that there's a better kind of distribution stream and we can actually put more production value into it. But you know, you're going to make a, a show like The Good Lord Bird, which is historical fiction set at the eve of the Civil War. It's a story about abolitionist John Brown and bleeding Kansas. And that story deserves a certain level of production value and money and talent. And um, we, you know, we budget them accordingly. And I think the, the good news is when we say something's going to be, you know, on the very high end of expense, most of the buyers trust that we're not making it up because they know we're capable of doing things that are, you know, appropriately budgeted. So it's, um, it's, it, it's, it gives us a ton of freedom that our film colleagues don't quite have. <laughs> Sometimes they're jealous. <laughs> well, great. Thank you guys. We're going to open it up for, for questions now. So who's first? Or in the back? Uh, so there's obviously not a, a hard and fast line between uh, the film and TV sides of Blumhouse, but how porous is it? And do projects ever swap from the theatrical arm to TV, or does, t does the theatrical arm ever poach anything from you guys? It's uh, all the oh, time. Do you want to go first? It's super porous. Um, it's actually unlike anywhere, I can say this with great certainty, it's unlike anywhere I've worked, anywhere I've experienced, where often there's kind of a, there's a Chinese wall between the film and television divisions at major studios. And in fact, often they kind of loathe each other. And it's not, that's no secret. And it's sort of like a little sibling, big sibling rivalry. Uh, and it's very hard to pass material back and forth. I experienced that firsthand at studios where I worked. At Blumhouse, well, first of all, it's aided by the fact we all sit seven feet apart from each other. So that, that's helpful. Close quarters. This close, like all day. All day long. So that's really helpful. Um, it also comes from that is the sort of tone of the company set by Jason. We absolutely are one, we're, you know, sort of one, one company with different financial structures. And we look at material in a very holistic way. So all the time we're, we're reading material and going, mm, you know, that's not for us, but that, 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 that's a wide release movie. You know, over to you, Cooper. That's Cooper Samuelson runs the film side. And vice versa, they're sending us material. We're also taking meetings with writers actors, directors, producers all day long together. And we're optioning, we're finding and hunting and optioning material together sometimes, not knowing quite what it's going to be. I mean, yeah, so Sarah Lawrence is a good example. We sort of hunted and got it together. So yeah, very, very fluid to your question and good question. I think up here we had a question. Hi. Is this on? Is this working? Hello? Yes. Hello. Hi. Um, my name is Megan. Uh, first of all, thank you all for your just really positive infusion of energy and your passion. It, it comes through and it's very relaxing. Um, my question is more uh, for each or whoever feels like answering personally rather than as a group. Was there an idea or a project or source material that you found earlier in your careers before uh, you moved to your current positions that has sort of you thought, oh man, if only I'd had my position that I have now, I could have made that a reality. That's a, that's a great, great question. question. <laughs> I think we all have those projects that stick with us and that I, there, there are some that we've done that with where we've loved them and thought about them and 
then being in this position, we like, we can actually make this a reality here. But I'll, you guys should speak about specific. Well, I mean, I don't have a, I think for me, coming from the indie doc world, to be frank, my life was a constant hustle, right? I was constantly hustling for the filmmakers to be able to like make money enough to one, like documentaries can take up to 10 years to make, right? So yeah, being here has been, what's been nice is that the hustle is still real, but there's a little bit more freedom. Like I get to bring in projects here that might not take me 10 years if everybody likes it, you know? And that is, like I cannot explain to you how relax, relaxing that is. Like when I have a project that I really care about and really think is important and I bring it to them and they luckily agree, like my other life, like three months ago, it would have been like, okay, we just raised five grand. We can, you know, one more shoot, you know? And so I think that um, luckily that's, that's my answer. <laughs> so. I love that you asked that question too because we all, like, we're a lead by passion kind of group of people. And if there's one of us that feels really strongly about something, even if we don't all agree, um, Jeremy and Marcy and the whole team are really, really supportive of us pursuing that because they trust in our vision and trust in what we bring to the table, and that's really exciting. Yeah, I would say I came from the business side of the industry, so I probably don't have as many projects that I personally missed out on, but on the passion front, um, uh, and it's something Amanda and I do together, I've been involved with the, the Sundance Catalyst program, which is a program that Sundance runs to get uh, investment in independent film and television. And there was a film two years ago at Catalyst that was a doc this year at Sundance called Infiltrators, which is a story of young dreamers, DACA kids, who um, infiltrated uh, deportation centers to help families avoid having family members uh, deported, particularly um, during a window of time when the Obama administration was not deporting dreamers. Um, and I had this incredible sense that it's a very indie kind of, you know, independent documentary film, very kind of intellectual. It's the filmmaking style is very kind of artful. And um, I came back and I said to everybody, I think there's a television series here. And I'm not sure anybody thought I knew what I was talking about, but I just, I felt it and Jeremy and the rest of the team supported it and we're about to take a pitch out with a, um, a, 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 a writer, um, a young woman who um, herself has um, personal immigration stories and um, we're about to take it out as a scripted um, series. So super exciting. Yeah. Um, and I would answer by saying, I, first of all, I think it's such a great question, but I, I think there's one, there's one that I'm sort of obsessed with Maple and vine. That is something that it's almost more. Oh, really? Yeah. It's almost. This is something we we developed together prior life, but we've all read it now, and we've tried a couple times to to to, to resurrect it. But this is a play that we found an option that would maybe be adapted into television. But it, I bring it up because I think that sometimes it's just about letting enough time lapse. I mean, this was true for a lot of things that became hit television shows like Breaking Bad and Mad Men, where they faltered. Sopranos that faltered elsewhere and then found their way. Uh, not the original network of origin. So sometimes it's just about if you love something, it keeps you up at night. I mean, this is one that I will think of what I'm running, and I'll pop in my head in the middle of the night. I, I mean, I'm obsessed with it. I think it's just we just have to wait until the time changes a little bit. There's some new buyers in position. 
the, something in the country is a little bit different, and it's a little bit about timing. Um, so sometimes you have to take those passion projects and just park them, and don't forget about them, and then wait, and then go out again. And sometimes it's cool that some of the things we loved a while ago become more and more relevant as time passes, and you realize, oh, maybe the timing wasn't right for it then, but now the story can be told with a kind of different lens into it, and that's kind of cool. I actually had a buyer recently say to me, um, bring me your project that you've pitched to everyone that no one else would buy but you're still passionate about because that's the project I want to hear. Now let's see what happens when we it bring it to It only takes <laughs> one yes to get something made. Any other questions out there over here? Hi, um, so there's a few of us here from Australia at the festival at the moment. Um, a lot of us are in our early 20s as well, so you talk a lot about uh, reading things. Um, for us, because we're half a world away, what uh, information or advice would you have for getting our feet in the door and getting things in front of people like you? Well, you've asked the right people because we're working with like 100 <laughs> Australians right now. True, Amazing. there's so many Australians. We're infiltrating everywhere, it's fantastic. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, well, uh, you work in fiction, right? Yeah, I, I write screenplays, yeah. It's not my area of expertise. <laughs> well, you know, we, we were having this conversation last night with Gigi. Uh, Gigi, don't mind that I'm going to invoke our discussion. But, you know, you hear a lot in this day and age, you hear just make things, um, have your voice heard. And um, Gigi made, was it 16 short films? 16 short films, horror films, as a student, as an aspiring filmmaker, um, and um, we saw them. Other people noticed them. She was starting to get a social media presence. She was getting the attention of film critics, and um, that led us to taking, Sahar took a general meeting, and then it I led think, to Gigi, a we conversation about one of our films. And so I, I think you should practice your art. And um, there's so many outlets now in the kind of space we're living in for people to get exposure to your content. We have a company that um, we have a, a relationship with called Crypt TV. And in the horror space, it's a wonderful incubator for great ideas, uh, some of which have turned into movies. And um, I think Gigi was one of their first uh, artists to work on the platform. And so I think in some ways, practice your art um, and you know work it and make relationships and come to conferences like this and network but do the things that make you passionate um, we we buy scripts from young people all the time yeah I mean I think the world the world we're so connected now in a different way than we've ever been before and I mean we're you know since I've been here I think they've got projects like Iran, India, Australia. It's pretty international, so I, you can make stuff where you are. As yeah. long as it's noisy, it will be seen, you know? So I think that's, don't, don't think of the divide anymore. No more walls, you know? Like, let's, uh, so that's, I think, Take just... Take that. Yeah. Take no that, President walls. Trump. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. <laughs> to expand a little bit on what Marcy said, Gigi, not to put you on the spot, but I think we were, like, your first... Studio general. We were number, right? We were her first general, and she, but because she had been making stuff, she came in so prepared. She had executed content before. She really blew us away with the fact that, you know, she, 
was, it was like she'd been doing it for years. She knew what she was doing because she felt confident in her skin in that regard. And we love it when, even, even if you haven't had anything made yet, but you've written a lot of things and you've explored different sides of your storytelling and ability to articulate that, that's really exciting for us. We don't care if you've made 10 movies or just written a couple shorts in your bedroom. Like, if you can articulate your vision, we love that. Another Thank question? You so much. Um, as far as non-scripted subject matter, what would you say is the most risky or edgy uh, that you've gone, or and is there an area that you just won't go? I don't. I have never been confronted with an area that we won't go, or that a subject matter that I'm too afraid to touch as a producer. Um, look, there are subjects that are harder to sell. Right. You know, when you're dealing with certain subjects, people are, are, are freaked out, you know, just to use, the, you know, be blunt about it. But I think those are actually probably ones you have to work harder at trying to shape in a way that the story is told in the right way, that it makes it available to an audience, right? Palatable, right. Like, would any of you ever, um, or would you ever consider something that was along the lines of, um, the true lives or relationships of sex workers or the effects of like SESTA-FOSTA on or decriminalization of sex work, that type of thing. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're doing, so yeah, se we're not afraid of sex talk for sure. I mean, in any way, <laughs> shape or form. I think, and, and, I, and I'm about to now segue into one of the things we're doing that is not consensual. So like, it's about a subject that was not consensual. We, we have a documentary, a feature documentary called Groomed about a woman who, realizes later in her life that she was groomed by her swim coach. She thought at 12 years old she was in love with this 23-year-old man who actually ended up, you know, molesting her. And it's about her confronting him and confronting the fact that they weren't actually in a relationship. And she also talks to others who went through very similar things. It's a very painful thing to watch. It's uh, very deep and it's very uh, emotional and it's very raw. And it's a personal journey. And those are sorts of sorts of subjects that people are, I think, find frightening to, you know. And so, but no, are we afraid of that subject? No, because those are subjects we have to talk about. What's scary in the corner, right? You know. And so. by the way, in that documentary, we actually uh, interview a sexual predator about the process of grooming, and that is something I think many other places would be, would be afraid to do. That's right. But we think there's something really important about exploring all angles of that and understand getting to the root of how you understand that. Right. And I have a feeling when people watch, when they see the film, that particular person, because he has a voice in the film, that's going to cause a lot of controversy. Yeah. But it's also something that makes the film, you get an insight into that brain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. All right. One, one last question. One last question. Okay. Where is it? Anyone? Yes, right there. Hi there. I've been a fan of Bloomhouse for a long time. Um, and this panel has just made me an even bigger fan. I love the way that you guys think about creativity and cross-pollination and just grabbing things from everywhere. I was curious, was there a, a singularity point where it went from strictly horror genre to things that keep you up at night? Um, where, it, where you really started to expand the notion of like, we can take this genre that's kind of pigeonholed into this very small thing and blow it out of all realm of possibility. I think for, um, 
Marcy and myself and the the opening and the building and the expansion of the studio, it was it was sort of job one, and it was critical thought that we had before we came in the door, um, and we had buy-in from from Jason and Charles Layton, who uh, runs the company with us, to to do that. And the reason being, why would we ever want to limit ourselves in the marketplace to just to just horror? It'd be far too limiting, and we knew we wanted to do things across, as we've discussed here today, scripted and non-scripted, and doc series, and mashed up, and narrative nonfiction, and all these ways to tell stories, and we wanted to do something much broader than than just horror. So it really was about a necessity, I think, to scale a meaningful television studio to be able to open those borders and, and give ourselves plenty of plenty of freedom to, to run. And I would say um, in in our conversations with Jason and Charles before we came to the company, it was it was as Jeremy said, it was on the list that we were going to build a company that was not limited by the definition of being a traditional horror company. We had a couple things that were really, I think, good indicators that it was the right thing to do. One, I think Jason's sensibility. Two, we were in the process of making, Blumhouse was in the process of making sharp objects. Uh, when I say we, I was making it with Blumhouse, but from the other, from another company's point of view. So we knew that the company in and of itself, the DNA of the company had an interest in exploring those kinds of stories. And when you had the previous successes of the television company, just as a producer for hire, being the normal heart the jinx, um, those were really great examples of where the television company not only had gone, but should continue to go. And so we really felt very strongly that we should build on that. And it was not, I mean, it was not even remotely a controversial conversation. And by the um, way, horror fans um, tend to be really open-minded and really want to be challenged in different ways. So that was not a difficult thing for us to be excited to do, is to give our fans, who already knew us of being controversial and thrilling and conversation starters, to, to get them excited about it and then bring in new fans who might not know about horror and its capacity for storytelling and, and empathy and do that in a different way too. So that was kind of a no-brainer. And then I have to say, also from a disruptive point of view, I mean, Bathtubs Over Broadway, which is about corporate musicals and one man's so journey. It's a fun musical comedy doc, which most people would not think keep you up at night, but they do because you're singing them in your head. So, so that's, that's how it fits into the brand. Well, or sometimes we just love stuff and we decide to do it and yeah. say, we're doing it anyway. Well, yeah. And it's on Netflix, by the way. Yeah, and it's and, on stream uh, on Netflix. My insurance that? man. That'll keep you up. Yeah. <laughs> on that note, we got to wrap up. Thank you so much for being here, Team Blumhouse. Thank and you. thank you all Thanks for everyone. coming out. The TV Campfire is produced by Caitlin McFarland, Emily Gibson, and AJ Myers, along with our audio partner, Five Ohm Productions. Mark your calendars. ATX TV Festival Season 9 is happening June 4th through 7th, 2020 in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit atxfestival.com and follow us on social media at ATX Festival. And be sure to check out our episode notes for a very special discount on badges exclusive to the TV Campfire podcast listeners. As always, please rate, subscribe, and share this podcast. And stay tuned for even more exclusive releases each week. <laughs>